All right, any single time a pastor preaches a sermon, it's important. I know that sounds self-serving because I'm saying it and I'm a pastor and I'm about to preach a sermon, but it really is true. Any time a pastor preaches, it is important, assuming that the sermon is based on the Bible. And the reason it's important is not because the pastor is important, it's because the Bible is important. And also, any single time a pastor preaches a sermon, the pastor is not worthy to preach that sermon. Um, God is worthy, and the pastor is preaching God's word, but the pastor himself, or in my case, the pastor myself, is not worthy. That's always true. That's true every Sunday. I'm just especially aware of it this Sunday. It's especially on my mind. I'm aware of how important what I'm about to say is. It really is. And I'm aware of how unworthy I am to say it. I really am. Uh, And so... I just want to pray to start to ask God for help with those two things. Holy Father, I know that your word is important. I know that preaching is important. I know that you speak to your people by your spirit, through your word, and you have chosen to speak to your people through the preaching of your word. I believe that, and I believe that therefore preaching is important. And so I pray that you would once again speak to us, your people, through your word. I also recognize that I am not a worthy message bearer, that the particular message that comes out of Philippians chapter 2 is so very important, but uh, there's a disconnect between the importance of the words and the glory of Jesus and the humility of Jesus and, and myself as the messenger. And so I pray, Lord, I'm asking that you would help me not to be a distraction, that you would be pleased to speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And that nothing that I say or do would get in the way of that. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we have come to one of the most well-known and most beloved passages in all of Scripture. It's Philippians chapter 2. I expect as I start reading it, if you don't already know it, uh, you'll recognize it. Uh, It is a picture of the glory of Christ. It is also a picture of the humility of Christ. Those aren't two separate things. His humility is glorious. So let me read it, and then we'll think together about it. Philippians in chapter 2, and I'll read the first 11 chapters. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. When I think of this passage, here's, what, here's the image that I have in my mind. I think of Lake Michigan. I grew up right near the shores of Lake Michigan. Lord willing, a month from now, I'll be there again with my family, and uh, we'll, we'll do this. Uh, we will take the time to do what I'm about to describe. We'll stand on the shore of Lake Michigan, and we'll look out. Uh, it's big enough that you don't, you don't see Michigan. It's, Michigan is too far away. You just see water. And when you look out at Lake Michigan, it, you see the ripples on the water, and they sparkle. It's, it, it's, they sparkle like diamonds. I'm sure you can picture that. It's not just Lake Michigan. That happens on water. So you look out, and you see these diamonds sparkling, right? And it's beautiful. And all you have to do then is lift your eyes to the horizon, and then look above the horizon, and look up in the sky, and you see the actual sun. And it's beautiful too, and it's glorious, but it's also painful. It's powerful. I mean, it's so glorious, if you just stare at the sun, it'll burn a hole through your retina, right? You can look at those ripples all day, but you can only look at the sun for just a couple seconds, and then you have to look away, right? The, the glinting of the ripples is beautiful, and it's bright in its own way, but it's nothing compared to the brightness and the glory of the sun. Because the sun is the source of the light, and the sparkles on the water are the reflection. They're not the source, they're the reflection. Okay? That doesn't diminish the value or the beauty of the sparkles. They're great. But it explains them. It makes sense of them. It tells us where they came from. Right? Looking at the sun shows us where those sparkles came from and how they got there. That's how this passage that I just read works. It starts out looking at the ripples and the sparkles. It starts out looking at us, our behavior, telling us to be humble. And when we live like that, it, is, it, is, it sparkles. It's beautiful to live humble. But then in verse 5, there's a transition. And Paul basically says, alright, okay, that's beautiful. Now I want you to look at the source. Look at the source of your humility. Get a good look at the humility of the Son of God and recognize that your humility, beautiful as it is, is really only a tiny little reflection of His incredible and glorious humility. That's what this passage is saying. Some passages in the Bible are hard to understand, right? This one is not. Philippians, especially this first part, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, uh, that's not at all hard to understand. I could summarize it like this. Be united. It's a command to be united. We heard that command last week, right? If you heard that sermon last week, we saw Paul was emphasizing that in order to 
be a church that is living life worthy of the gospel. We need to stand firm in one spirit, stride forward side by side with one mind, and not be frightened by our opponents. Right? So it was about unity, standing firm, striving together. Now, in the start of chapter 2, we find the same instruction. Paul saying, be of one mind, be united. And then the question is, what will, what will destroy our unity? What will prevent us from being unified? And the answer is selfishness. Self-focus. Living for myself. Valuing myself over others. Valuing my ideas over the ideas of others. That is what will destroy our unity. And what will accomplish our unity? Humility. That's it. That's the whole point of verses 1-4. to Be united by being humble and not being selfish. That's basic stuff, right? Who, who doesn't understand that? Who's confused right now? Right? That's obvious. That, that sounds like, when I read that, that sounds like a dad instructing his kids on the way home from school. Right? Do you know the scene? You know what's happening in a car full of kids with the dad driving? Right? The kids are poking each other. Right? They're arguing about who touched whom first. They're whining. They're begging. Can we please stop for a Slurpee? I'm dying back here. Right? You've been there? And what does a dad do? My kids could tell you. The dad says, Hey! Quit it! Stop only thinking about yourselves and what you want and start thinking about other people. You can imagine the look I'm getting right now. The irony of that little lecture is that the dad, well, let's just call it what it is. I say it with a tone of voice that makes it clear that I am only thinking about myself and my desire for peace and quiet in the car. And so now what happens is Everyone in the car, including the dad driving, is being selfish, and no one is being humble, and there is no unity in the car. Been there? We do it all the time, right? Orbiting around ourselves, focusing on our desires, our preferences, our needs, and in the process, not noticing that we're stomping on the toes of anyone else who happens to be in our path, which destroys any unity that we might be able to experience with others. And so Paul writes to the Philippian church. And Paul writes to Ebenezer. And he basically says, stop it. Stop focusing on yourself all the time. Stop focusing on your own preferences all the time. But he doesn't quite say it like that. He doesn't say it like the, la- like the lazy dad. That's just sort of venting and being selfish himself, right? To just say that, right? Stop it. Just be humble. That would be like commanding a little ripple on the water to start sparkling. Even if the sun isn't up yet, right? Show up, show up there at like 4.30 in the morning and just start commanding. Come on, sparkle! Right? If the, the ripple might reply, say, hey, I'd like to. But how can I? I'm H2O, right? There's nothing inherently luminescent about me. 
I can't just turn that on. I can't just start sparkling. How am I supposed to obey that command? So, instead of shouting like an exasperated parent, look at what Paul does here. He points to the source of humility. He says, look, look, if you're getting any encouragement from Christ, hey, look, at, look, at, look at Christ. If you're experiencing any comfort from love, if there's, if there's any reality to our mutual participation in the Spirit, right? If you, if you have affection for others, if you have sympathy for others, then complete my joy. <laughs> complete my joy by living that out, acting on that. Right? Do you see what he's doing there? He's not just shouting, hey, knock it off back there. Don't, don't make me stop this car and, and come over to Philippi and sort this out. Right? He doesn't say that. He's grounding his exhortation in the fact of the life-changing reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? He's saying, look, if the gospel is really true, right? do we believe it or don't we believe it? If the gospel's really true, if we're not just playing dress up here, but the gospel is true, then that changes our daily behavior. It changes our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So complete my joy by living lives that reflect the glory and the character of the Savior and sparkle with His light. Let His light reflect off of your life. That Paul is a good and loving spiritual father. He's saying to his children, I love you. I want what's best for you because I love you. It brings me joy to see you thriving. It brings me joy to see you making wise decisions. And therefore, listen, if, if the gospel is real and powerful, and it is, well then live it out. And live it out by being united together with one another. And be united together with one another by being humble, like Christ. And verse, that's verses 3 and 4 where he says, the way you live this out is by being humble, not being selfish. He says, he says this. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourself. That's so easy to say. Right? Those are just words. They're easy to say. But to embody that and to live that out, to count others as more significant than ourselves, that's hard. And you notice that it's, it starts with being of one mind. This is... This is not just like getting along and covering up our differences and pretending that they're not there. This is not about just being agreeable. This is about being in agreement. One mind. Being of one mind about what? Everything? No. <laughs> no, being of one mind that Jesus Christ is Lord. Worshiping Him together instead of worshiping ourselves. Being of one mind about that. See, the, the church consists of uh, a, a, a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas about a lot of different things, and that's okay. But we are to be of one mind that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
We are to be of one mind that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. We are to be of one mind that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the means by which we're saved from our sins and reconciled to God. We are to be of one mind that Jesus Christ is worthy of all worship and praise. That He is worthy that we pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Him. We need to be of one mind about Jesus, who He is, and why that matters. We don't need to be of one mind about everything. And we're not going to be of one mind about everything. But we better be agreed about that. Who Jesus is, what He expects from us, and why that matters. Only then are we released from doing things from selfish motivations. Right? That takes us out of the equation. We're no longer focused on ourselves. If we're focused on worshiping Jesus, giving glory to His name, and following where He leads, do you know who we're not focused on? Us. (laughs) See, the Gospel offers this Copernican revolution. Right? You, 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 You know the story. Nicholas Copernicus... Right? You, know, you know, he published a book that eventually turned the scientific community upside down, explaining that basically, hey, I got news for everybody. We got it all wrong. We have misunderstood how the universe works. Everybody. Actually, turns out, the sun doesn't orbit around the earth. The earth actually orbits around the sun. That was a different way of viewing the whole universe. Turns out he was right. And so all the science books had to be rewritten. The gospel accomplishes a Copernican revolution in our own hearts. Right? It's a gospel revolution. It turns our lives upside down by kicking us out of the throne. Right? The world doesn't revolve around us anymore. It puts God onto the throne. It teaches us to worship God and to look out for the interests of others instead of just looking out for our own interests. That is a different way to live. Thinking of ourselves and our own needs, that comes naturally. That's easy. Right? No one, no one has to be taught to look out for their own interests. Right? But children don't need to be taught to look out for their own interests. Infants don't need to, be, need to be taught to look out for their own interests. They know their needs. Right? They don't even have words yet, but they know how to articulate that they're not happy, and that they need something, and they want it now. Right? From infancy to old age. That's what we naturally do, is look out for our own interests. The gospel revolution happens when God breaks in and teaches us true humility. I I once read an an article. It was a conductor, a famous conductor, being interviewed. And uh, he was asked, what is the hardest instrument to play? And his answer Without even hesitating, the article said he answered right away, second violin. He went on to say, I can find lots and lots of first violinists, but without the second violin, we have no harmony. The article went on to say that the first violin is the one that gets noticed. The first violin is the one that plays the themes that people walk out of the concert hall humming. And the second violin plays the umpapas. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. (laughs) The difference between people who play second violin 
And first violin is often not their skill level, it's their sense of the music as a whole, right? As opposed to the solo, the sense of the whole picture. One second violinist that was interviewed for the article said it this way. He said, the orchestra is not really the place for virtuosity. In fact, often the virtuosos can be the problem in certain musical situations. Blending is everything in an orchestra. And the second violinists seem utterly attuned to the orchestra as a single entity and to their contribution to that. Uh, when I read that, I, I'm amazed at the parallels between that and Paul's vision for the church in Philippians 2. Right? The, the, the article went on to say this. Uh, he said, uh, the, the second violinist that was speaking said, uh, I think you have to subsume yourself into the whole. And it's a very thrilling feeling to feel wired into this mega gigantic string organism. It's not always the most glamorous, but it's very heartfelt. It's the soul of music making. When you're playing the second violin part, you can see the textures and the tapestry of the whole music. When you're playing the first violin, you get all the attention, you get all the glamour, you play the bits that people walk out humming, but you might miss the thrill of losing yourself into the community of musicians that make up the orchestra because your role is so prominently front and center. Instead of being part of the whole, you're standing out as a soloist. But when you're second violin, you're no longer concerned about your own specific role or how people are analyzing and assessing your personal role. You don't stand out so much. You're far more concerned with the whole, with the piece as a whole, and making sure that making all the other contributing members of the symphony orchestra sound good collectively together. So the, the point of the article is that the call to second violin is not a call to mediocrity. It's not a call to second best, because you're second violin. It is in some ways, it's the tougher position. It's focused on making the whole group sound good. That's what Philippians 2 is getting at. It's the call to count others as more significant than yourself to look to the interests of others rather than looking out for your own interests. It's a call to start viewing life in the local church as a symphony in which we all have our God-appointed roles to play. And our ultimate goal is not to make sure that we get the best part or that we get noticed or that our opinion wins. It is to make every effort to serve, to encourage, to build up, to bring out the best in others, so that this symphony that we're playing as a whole sounds great, whether or not anyone ever notices the part that we're playing. It's hard to do, but it's glorious when we get it right. That's what true humility looks like. Now, how do we get there? Well, if we stick with the metaphor, the way that we get there is by looking at the conductor and following his lead, right? We have a conductor. We have someone who's leading us, who's guiding us. Uh, it ain't me. I, I, think, I think that goes without saying, but uh, I'll just say it. We, we, have, we have a head. We have a guide. We have a leader. And what we're not to do is look around and see what everyone else is doing, right? That'll throw us all off. 
We're supposed to keep our eyes on the conductor. Or to go back to the original metaphor, we are allowed to the glory and the radiance of the sun to sparkle off of us, to keep our eyes on the sun. Or to use the words of Philippians, here's how we do it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. That is possible because you are in Christ Jesus and he can transform you to be like him. And then we get this description of of the divine parabola. I think I've used that phrase before here, but it might have been years ago. But this, the divine parabola, that's that's just an image I have of the ministry of Christ start to finish. A, A parabola is a mirror image arc, right? So that means the downswing of the arc is exactly the same and it's parallel to the upswing, right? So it's equal on both sides like that. And, and, and we read this passage of the divine humility of Jesus. You see that his life was the largest parabola in the history of the universe, right? It begins in eternity past. It begins infinitely high. And then, by his own choice, it swings down infinitely low, lower than we could ever imagine. And then it swings back up infinitely high. That's the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then Paul goes on to explain, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God. That's, 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 that's a way of saying that Jesus is God. Jesus always was God. Paul says, says it in that way in the form of God because he's going to emphasize that he voluntarily took on a different form. Right? He did not account, count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. It means he possessed the fullness of the divine status, but he was willing to release his grip on that. It was his. He had a right to it, and he released it. That doesn't mean he gave up his divine nature. He didn't. He was and is and always will be fully God. He didn't give up his divine nature. He gave up his divine status. It'd be like if a prince decided to leave the kingdom where his father's king, go to a country where he's totally unknown. In the new country, his nature hasn't changed. He's still the same person. He's still the son of the king. But in that new country, his status is changed because the people in that country, don't recognize his royalty. So Jesus could have maintained his divine status in heaven, but instead, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he stooped down and he willingly gave up his divine status while retaining his divine nature. You can see the, the parabola is on the downswing here. In fact, his status sunk so low, if you keep reading, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or or a slave and being born in the likeness of men. So so as he swings down on this parabola, he's really picking up speed on the downward slope. He's equal with God, but he makes himself nothing. He goes from the form of God to the form of a slave. The word there is doulos. It means slave. It implies not only that you're someone's servant, but that you're someone's property. If you're a doulos, someone owns you and legally has the right to do with you what they want. You don't have any rights. Now, it's one thing to be forcefully made to be someone's slave, to be captured and enslaved, but it's another thing for someone to voluntarily say, 
I will willingly become your slave. There's a, there's a good novel that, that contains this idea. It's a, it's a historical novel about the first century. It's called The Spear, if you're into that kind of thing. It, uh, the, the, in the book, there's this soldier named Cassius. His father is a well-off general in the Roman army. His father is not a nice guy. He's brash, he's opinionated, he's, he's arrogant. And he makes some powerful political enemies. And then uh, he gets conned in a business deal, and he goes into massive debt. And then his political enemy buys the debt so that now the general is economically enslaved to his worst enemy. And that's just too much for him to take, so he tries to take his own life, but it, he's not successful, and the son comes, uh, his, his own son comes and finds him. The son finds out what has happened, goes to the enemy that owns his father's debt, and, and he says to the enemy, I'll become your slave if you cancel my father's debt. And the bad guy thinks, well, this is just way too good to be true. My enemy's son is going to become my property. I can do what I want with him. I can beat him. I can humiliate him. I, I can do whatever I want with him, and no one could stop me. And you're, you're reading this, and you're thinking, Cassius, don't do it. What? Let your father, your, your, this is his fault. Let him suffer for his own foolish and prideful mistakes. You, Cassius, you have your whole life ahead of you. You have a great career. You're well off. You're about to marry the woman you love. Don't trade all that in just to pay off someone else's debt. But he does it. And as soon as he does it, his father is released from his debt. And as soon as he does it, the new, his new owner slices his ear with the mark of a slave and then beats him and then publicly humiliates him because, well, he can. He owns him. Cassius is his doulos. That's the word that's used for Jesus here. Jesus could have come to earth and he could have demanded that everyone serve him. That would have, that would have been his divine right. But instead, the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order to pay our debt, he made himself a slave. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, with that, with that verse, the parabola just bottomed out. Crucifixion was the lowest form of execution. Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. They had to be executed a different way. It was, it was too humiliating, too painful, too horrible. Slaves were allowed to be crucified, though. Jesus came as a slave. In the Old Testament, it says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus didn't just die. He died crucified and cursed of God. The bottom of the parabola is this. The torture, the abuse, the execution of a slave on a cross, as he bears not only the mocking and the physical torture of his oppressors, but bears for us the fullness of God's righteous wrath over all that is sinful and evil in the world. That is the bottom of the parabola. And you can be sure that Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, who eventually wrote the book of Philippians, never ever would have worshipped a crucified Messiah unless he had very good reason to believe that the crucifixion was not the end of the story. And so here comes the upswing, and it's going to go very fast. It's like a catapult, okay? So you've got to pay attention. 
Okay? It says this. We, we, we're just at the bottom of the parabola, and then we get this word, therefore. Right? He says, therefore, because of all that, because of this downswing of this parabola, where he became a slave and was obedient to the point of death, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. We just launched up to the other side, right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If if you can hear those words and something doesn't stir in your heart, something's wrong, (laughs) something's broken. Those are glorious words. The honor that the Father bestows on the Son, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't diminish the glory of the Father. It's not like they're com- competing for a finite amount of glory. Right? The, the, the honor and the glory of the Son glorifies the Father in, in even greater fullness. And one day, everyone will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone. That doesn't mean that everyone will be worshiping him. You can recognize someone's authority and still hate them. Right? Do you know that feeling? Where you, you recognize, okay, that person has the authority. I, I recognize that. I don't like it. I don't like them. But I recognize their authority. You can bow to a king and recognize his status and at the same time be cursing him in your heart. But the point here is that the day will come when there will be no denying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not one person is going to deny that. And some will love his lordship, and some will hate his lordship, but everyone will recognize it because it will be undeniable. It will be just as plain and bright and glorious as the sun shining in the sky. Nobody denies that, right? That's how it will be. All right, so by way of application, in closing, let me ask you this. What was the original lie, the first lie, the big one, the one that sent us down this path of destruction? It was, it was this. God's holding out on you, so you better, you better grab something for yourself. God's not looking out for you, so you better look out for yourself. Isn't that what the serpent told Eve? Right? God's holding out on you. You're missing out on something good. He said you can't have the fruit from that tree because he knows. He knows. It's good. He's not going to give it to you. He's withholding it from you. So you're going to have to take this into your own hands and take some for yourself. If you think about it, Adam and Eve and the whole rest of humanity, us included, uh, we have the inverse parabola of Jesus. We started low, we reached up, and we tried to make ourselves like God, right? He knows on the day you eat of it, you will be like God. We tried to exalt ourselves instead of humbling ourselves, and the result was we came crashing back down, and death entered the world. Our parabola goes like that, but thank God, Jesus did the opposite. He started infinitely high. He came down low, and now he is exalted on high at the right hand of God the Father. And because of that, our story is different. You and I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. 
And therefore, we no longer need to keep grasping at self-exaltation. We are freed from that. And we're able to worship and exalt God. And we're able to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We are able to stop being selfish and start being humble. We are able to serve others instead of serving ourselves. We are able to play second violin instead of insisting that we play first. We are able to be unified with one mind, proclaiming together that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I pray that you would make it so. May it be so. May we, the church at Ebenezer, be united in our mind, in our hearts, united in our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is your Son and our Savior and deserving of all glory and honor and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That we would be agreed and united that he is worthy of all worship and also worthy of all obedience. Worthy to be followed wherever he leads. And I pray that that would unite us. That that would be the thing which unites us. Our devotion to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that our devotion to you, Jesus, would have the effect of lifting our eyes off of ourselves, our own desires, and preferences, and keep us focused on you. And pray for those of us who are, who are tempted to want the big solo, who want to play first violin, who want to get our way, who think our way is the best. Would you please just take that violin away? Just remove it, and teach us how to play like an orchestra, with our eyes focused on you. And I pray that song that we play would be beautiful and it would be to your glory, not ours. Amen.